We are Danny and Marcus Delalio, and welcome to Deep Diving Delalios. So welcome back to episode eight of Deep Diving with the Delalios. I'm super excited about this episode, but I want to say, um, if you're not already on a watch list, we might be after this. Oh, nice. You know how everybody has an FBI agent that watches their what they do online? Um, I think we're going to get upgraded to CIA, so... Ooh. Let's go, let's go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, of course, we'd like to thank our Patreon members. Um, we're actually doing this simultaneously as a live stream as well over on our Patreon. So make sure you check us out over there if you haven't already. Um, we're also, before I thank them, we're also starting our... Um, Patreon book club. So we're starting with The Looming Tower, um, which is kind of what our series today has to do with. Um, without further ado, thank you to our Patreons. We want to thank Mama Ali, Jackie, who's awesome. Um, we've got Emily over there. Thank you all so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate and? your time. Oh, Mom. Mother. I'll never forget you, Mom. Every Even time. if your firstborn does, I won't. Every time. So before we get too carried away, Marcus is back from his New York trip where he did not go to the city. He just went to the state. Yes, it was fantastic. Very much so. Um, cold. Very cold. I hate the cold. It's one of the main reasons I left Canada. But he just spent the last two days driving back, so he does not know anything really about this episode. No, I unplugged almost entirely while I was in New York. Yeah, he doesn't have any conspiracy corner. He has nothing. I have a conspiracy corner, though, and it's a good one. It's what's going to get us on a CIA watch list. Yes! When American 11 struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001, the American public was completely in the dark. We thought this must be some terrible accident. But by 9.03, when United 175 struck the South Tower, we knew this was no accident. We'd hardly even been made aware of Osama bin Laden, that he had very credible intentions to attack us at the time. But one man did know. One man had been putting his job on the line for years, trying to warn the government of Osama's plans. And he would eventually be forced to retire for his efforts. Special Agent John P. O'Neill's obsession with Al-Qaeda and the quiet leader, Osama bin Laden, began after the 1993 terror attack on the World Trade Center that we talked about in detail in our last episode. Over the past 15 years, John had already worked his way up in the FBI. He had started as a fingerprint clerk to a tour guide, and then he began specializing in white collar and organized crime, as well as foreign counterintelligence. That's a big jump. Well, he went to school there too. Oh, so did he they was like in pay school. for a school or? No, I don't think so. No, oh no, no. Oh my gosh. He, and he also grew up watching like FBI, um, like, you know, those shows, not NCIS, but what it was at the time in like the, when the sixties and seventies, Yeah, he was like really into it. He wanted to be an FBI agent. He had become assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's Chicago field office, where he established the fugitive task force to enhance ties between agents and local law enforcement. Something for us true crime aficionados we wish would happen way more often than not. It is beneficial and necessary to solve a crime to have everyone working together and not in a pissing match with each other. Yeah. Trying to outshine the other. It's such a pain every time. And in 1994, John became the supervisor for the task force that was called VAPCON, which investigated abortion clinic bombings. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. He was what many would describe actually as a flamboyant. But not the way we would think of today, I noticed as I watched interviews of his old colleagues talking about what he was like. John had style. He was always dressed to the nines, and he took care of himself. It was said, regardless of the time of day that you saw him, because his work kept him up at night, he always looked polished. He dressed in pinstripe Burberry suits with white shirts and ties, his jet black hair, slick back, and buff nails. This seemed to threaten a lot of the other men who worked with him. Yo. Real talk for the men listening. Yeah. Buff your nails just once. <laughs> Sarah did that to me once, and I have not been able to get the feeling out of it out of my, my skin brain. But in any of the old interviews that his coworkers would do after the fact, um, they always referred to him as a dandy or a pansy because of his, the way he dressed and the way he held himself. It shows you the times for well, sure. It also doesn't. I mean, like, yeah, man, that, that dude's a great detective. Like, oh my gosh, he's cracked so many cases. He's brought millions of dollars back into the economy because of all these white collar crimes that he's solving. But I don't know. 
I don't know how much of it is credible in this new case because he, he might be gay. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, why? Yeah, but it's funny, too, because John was a bit of a ladies' man. So he got married to his childhood sweetheart, Christine, but he carried on simultaneous affairs with multiple women, and they wouldn't find out till years later his main woman, um, Valerie, she was completely shocked when years into her relationship with John, she found out he was married. Dude. And then she continued the relationship. That's what I can't get over. Because I'm like, if someone can lie about something as big as that, God knows what else they're hiding from you. That's sociopathic. Yeah, dude was disconnected from reality. Seriously. Like, entirely. I mean, dude, sow your wild oats, bro. You know? But... I also think that that's endlessly hilarious that his coworkers were like, oh, he might be gay. Meanwhile, he's got like 10 women. <laughs> well, I think they meant it not more of like a speculation of him. I think they thought it was an insult to, to call him gay. Do you know what I mean? Remember back to the early 2000s. I mean, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So I think that was what they were doing. They're like, we thought he was kind of a pansy because he buffed his nails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, do you pluck your unibrow? <laughs> Are you sure you don't like boys? <laughs> John also didn't fit the mold for normal FBI agents. He was loud, outspoken, and he clashed with others as he rose through the Bureau's ranks. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Good for him. He would often say things like, I am the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> I am the FBI? I am the FBI. Holy cow. I like this guy more and more. <laughs> Once he moved to New York City, he frequented a bar and restaurant that was called Elaine's, which was really high class. All the New York celebrities, authors, and some of the highest like crime fighters were in there every night, okay? Batman. Mm -hmm. The crime fighters. Yeah. <laughs> there was also a hierarchy when it came to the seating of Elaine, something that John always made sure to be a step ahead of. He always made sure to sit where he knew he would feel important. I know. Yeah, he's disconnected, bro. Yeah. That's, that is like American Psycho levels of that's fair. I hadn't yeah. thought of it in that way. There is a lot of criticism. John's kind of a controversial figure. Um, we'll get into why later. In 1995, John would return to Washington, D.C. to the J. Edgar Hoover Building, mm -hmm. FBI's headquarters, where he once studied and worked as a tour guide, and he became the chief of counterterrorism. Wow. Mm -hmm. His focus, the 1993 failed terrorism attack against the World Trade Center and its mastermind, Ramsey Youssef. Ramsey had gone on the land and managed to slip away overseas since the attack. The weekend that John took over as counterterrorism chief in 1995, so a couple years later, U.S. intelligence found out Ramsey Youssef would be out in the open for an extremely small window of time. Richard Clark, the White House's counterterrorism head, got the tip that Sunday and called over to the FBI headquarters. As you'll soon find out, John O'Neill did not have weekends. He lived and breathed his job. So, of course, he was at the office that Sunday night, even though he wasn't supposed to start work at his new position until Tuesday. What a legend. <laughs> Honestly, what a legend. He wanted to get ahead of his work. He picked up the phone. Who's this? Richard Clark asked, surprised at the voice he didn't recognize on the other end. I'm John O'Neill. Who the fuck are you? He replied. <laughs> look, look if, this, if this dude got in my face and told me how this generation doesn't want to work, this is the one guy I would listen to on this whole thing. I'd be like, yep, yeah, you're right. You're correct. Yeah, okay, Mr. John O'Neill, you are 100% right. What's funny is Richard Clark and John would become extremely close over the next few years of his career. Extremely close. That's all dudes need. They just need to fight. Yeah. Like, that's all they need. They're close. And within 24 hours, Ramsey Youssef was captured and on that helicopter we discussed last time headed to the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Lower Manhattan. Oh, yeah. That was a... Yeah. Sorry. If you didn't watch last week's episode that was... or listen last week's episode, because we do have a podcast now if you're not familiar, they, they, he, they'd had him blindfolded on his way into New York City. And the FBI agents, they removed his blindfold as he flew over Manhattan and they pointed at the Twin Towers and they said, look, they're still up. And he said they wouldn't be if we had more money. So this began John O'Neill's obsession with the terroristic threat against our country and its very real implications. He saw the looming threat and he began to notice who was going to carry it out. And if people had listened to him, if there had been more communications between our government and the departments in our government, perhaps 9-11 could have been stopped. But no one wanted to hear what John O'Neill had to say. When John joined the counterterrorism unit of the FBI, it was then known as the department where careers go to die. Holy cow. I know. There was no funding for it. 
We saw no need for it. I guess, yeah. But you know what's crazy? I think that was our ignorance and our innocence at the time because we already had foreign terrorist threats against our country because of the 1993 bombing. Mm -hmm. But you also have to think we also had the OKC bombing that had happened. So why weren't we taking things seriously? Now, that was a homegrown threat. Yeah. But why weren't we taking it seriously? Yeah. And I think it really was our ignorance and we also didn't realize that in us making the American dream, we had made countless enemies as well in that. Do you know, we were just so ignorant to Especially, it. Especially, I mean, dude, that Cold War. Yeah. Well, we, we made had, a we lot. Hadn't, we hadn't had any conflict since the Cold War either. Mm. And, so, that, and nobody, well, officially, yeah. nobody died for that. Mm -hmm. um, that's why it's a Cold War. It's not hot. Um, I think that's what we're in right now. I don't think the Cold War ever ended. <laughs> I sincerely don't. But, yeah. yeah. And we didn't understand, like, not only all the enemies we made, but that they actually had power as well, and that they were actually powerful forces. I think when we saw things we're going to get into when the threats start to come out, I mean, we mentioned in the first episode we didn't take Bin Laden seriously. Mm. So, but John recognized our enemies. And, and I, he, I, I'm sorry. No, you're good. I still don't understand why we don't, why we didn't take Mr. Bin Laden, seriously. Well, because I'll tell, I'll, we we're going to get into that. Trained him, Very so cool. would we not take a general that defected to another side from the United States Army? Would we not take him seriously? We're going to get into it. Okay. Osama Bin Laden had been linked to the 1993 bombing early on. As I said in our first episode, he was seen as a financier of terrorism, not a terrorist himself. His name had turned up on a list of donors to an Islamic charity. Remember, that's how they're funneling the money. We talked about that, I think, in episode three with American 77. Mm -hmm. It's how they're funneling the money, and, money is through charities. And, mm -hmm. if you guys don't know, the illegal trade of endangered species product. One rhino tusk is able to buy something close to like 10,000 AK-47s. Oh. And it is directly oh. being funneled into... Little side note for what I do for work. But. We should get into the exotic animal trade oh, at some point. I, I really want to. So as I said in one of our first episodes, he was seen as a financier of terrorism, not as a terrorist or a leader of a terrorist organization. Um, he had his name actually pop up on the list of donors mm -hmm. to an Islamic charity that helped finance the 1993 attacks. Because remember, that's how they were donating the Saudis. Because remember, there's a Saudi connection. And we are going to get into the Saudi connection in a future episode. But that was how they were funneling money into these terrorist attacks. The defendants in this case would actually refer to him as Sheikh Osama. Okay. It kind of shows his power, I feel like. Like the, where he was. Yeah, yeah. In, you know. It's like, um, it's not just a. He had a lot of, he had a lot of charisma. And it's, and, it, and it's not just a local thing either. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like people from, from different regions were still calling him chic. Or so he has like, a lot of charisma. Yeah. <laughs> I, at this point, I think he's probably dead, but um, I didn't put my tinfoil hat on for that. I should have put mine on. Yeah. The FBI and the CIA soon began to realize that everything was linking back to him. John stated, we've got to get this guy. He's building a network. Everything leads back to him. John soon lost himself in his work, becoming obsessed with the quiet speaking radical. Also, that is something I find very interesting that he's the, he is the, what is it? What did you say? it? The quiet speaking radical. Mm -hmm. Because most people, when you think of charisma or you think of um, attracting people towards you, you are loud, you're rambunctious, mm -hmm. you're out there. Da, 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 we have all the ministers yeah. over here with the Christian yes. revolution. And, and it's like... <laughs> My chair, I think, is broken permanently. Now, it's... <laughs> it keeps sinking. Um, now, yeah, no, it, it's interesting that he's he is the quiet speaking radical. Because well, he didn't need... It's almost like he didn't need to, to yell and scream and bash his fist to get his point across. He was, like, already preying on the anti-American, anti-whatever well, sentiments. Well, I think he was already set up to be a martyr. We're going to talk about why he attacked us soon Ooh. i really like because yeah there's a lot that goes into it and also i do want to say mom was talking to me about this a little bit beforehand but um when because of how our media portrayed these men in americans mind and i see it through my comment section on tiktok constantly you think men in caves came up with this and that is so 
racist and ignorant. Yeah. It wasn't men in caves. It, these men were well-educated. Mm -hmm. They were financially successful. Bin Laden was super financially successful. Yes, he went into hiding in caves at one point, obviously, because of all these terrorist attacks and everything else that yeah. he was putting out there. But no, he grew up very financially successful. Um, we're and talking about Saudi Arabia as well. 15 out of the 19 hijackers were Saudi Arabian. Yeah, and then not only that, but the whole idea that he was in a cave the entire time once again, probably stems from, and looking back on it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's a really stupid idea to start peddling out. What else is he going to do? He started a war. Like, yeah. that's that's what he did. Now, once again, hindsight is twenty twenty. but painting him and painting his group and others like it as just men in caves, what are we then? Because we couldn't kill him for over <laughs> 20 years, dude. So John would become the most knowledgeable agent on bin Laden and the Islamic fundamentalist extremism that was happening. If anyone had any questions about him or Al-Qaeda, the answer would always be, quote-unquote, ask O'Neill. According to Janet Reno, the U.S. general attorney at the time... Listen, Janet deserves an entire episode on her own, but that's going to be for her next series, yes. I think. And it won't have as many glowing reviews as John has. Soon, Bin Laden himself would declare war against the United States. However, he would not be taken seriously, even after two successful attacks against our embassies, which we will get into. Mm -hmm. Now, he had put a fatwa out against us, which is a formal ruling on a point of Islamic law by a qualified legal scholar. He had declared war because in his mind, quote, the U.S. government is unjust, criminal, and tyrannical. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> and he declared war in August of 1996. Just two years later, in August of 1998, the African embassy bombings would happen. So on August 7th, 1998, Nearly simultaneous bombs blew up in front of the American embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Africa. Whoa. Yeah. But don't worry, guys. He was just a guy in a cave. Yeah. Just a, a random guy. No power there. Yeah, no. 224 people lost their lives in the blast, including 12 Americans and more than 4,500 people would be wounded. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. Now, O'Neill and his team began investigating these bombings immediately, and this would send John O'Neill and his men into overdrive in their hunt for bin Laden, but the American public did not take it seriously. They couldn't care less. President Bill Clinton at the time made an address to the American public about the very real threat of Osama bin Laden, how they planned to hunt him down and kill him. Bin Laden was not a household name at the time. In fact, this was the first time many Americans were hearing his name. He was basically laughed off by the American public. This, hold on, you mm -hmm. can see this happening in real time because name the last ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or Taliban leader that was killed. People who had real influence, people who had real money and real power over thousands of people worldwide. What was their name? But well, we killed them, but what was their name? Yeah. No one knows because for some reason... We still, like you said, picture these people as just unwashed dudes in a cave, just mm -hmm. hanging out, watching Naruto or something. These are, okay, all right. Highly skilled individuals. Public media would actually condemn him at the time very publicly, okay? They said that this conference was a distraction from the very real burgeoning story of Monica Lewinsky under the desk. I mean, okay, I can see where they were coming from from that, because... A lot of things nowadays, I'm not just going to say nowadays, even back then, a lot of the news stories or the things that were pushed out by press mm -hmm. was not necessarily to completely cover up, but more override the, the other story that was probably more pressing at the yeah. time. However, I don't know if getting on air and talking about a dude that just killed 200 some odd people and, mm -hmm. and injured 4,500 more, I don't think that that was... Probably the top of his mind is like, oh, I probably shouldn't let it slip that I let it slip in an intern. Yeah. You know what I mean? However, most recently, the media condemned him for not acting on bin Laden due to Monica. 
distracting him at the time of that threat. So it just goes to show that no matter what you do, the media is always going to come for you. It doesn't matter. And don't try to please any anyone. Just don't. because This is going to become a soundbite for when we have to go to court. <laughs> <laughs> also, side note, when I read the script to mom, she says, yeah, because every time a scandal came up for Clinton, he bombs. <laughs> Yikes. But I mean, honestly, it is something to consider because like our government is so fishy in this entire thing. Yeah, like it's not- And we should do a deep dive in the Clintons because they've had some sketchy, like I, listen, listen, y'all, my political beliefs, I never let y'all in on them. I won't, but that, regardless of them, the Clintons are weird, man. There's a lot going on there. Hillary Clinton, I will be voting for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, I will be voting O'Neill soon began to notice Osama's threat was not only foreign, but sleeper cells had made their way into the United States. And he began having very real fears about the upcoming Millennium Celebration in New York. Ooh. And sure enough, Ahmed Rasim, an Algerian citizen illegally living in Montreal, Canada on a falsified passport, yeah, he would confess to a terror plot, a bomb that he planned to detonate at LAX. After an interrogation, when he was being stopped at Port Angles, which also makes me think about, that's how you say Port Angles, right? Washington? I, I don't know. We're going with it. Okay. Yeah, sure. Screw it. Then you we'll can, do it live. <laughs> you can just put a little white asterisk next, next to it. No, it's fine. It. I watched Twilight. I know how this is. He confessed to this after an interrogation when he was stopped in Port Angles as he tried to enter Washington from Victoria, Canada. He had used a ferry, okay? Um, he alerted authorities not only because he seemed nervous, but when they asked him for identification, he handed them a Price Costco membership card. You, you can't even write that good of comedy. So they began to pat him down and then he tried to run away. <laughs> I would say A plus for effort, but he didn't try. Like he didn't try, so. In his car, they found enough explosives to blow up a <laughs> He almost, he almost got away from, away with it. Like he was this close, and then it was the Costco the membership. Wasn't <laughs> for the metal and Costco membership card. That's what they always say in every true crime thing, and it's like he almost got away with murdering these children, but he left his Costco membership on the ground. You know what sucks is no mainstream media article reported that they just reported like how he was stopped and everything. I found that out in the 9/11 Commission, and when I tell you I wanted to throw up, I laugh so hard. <laughs> Because at that point, you're probably just thinking that, like, okay, these government officials, like, kind of had a gut feeling about this guy and went with it. And then you actually read it, <laughs> like, he gave them a Costco membership as his ID. And then he tried to run away. <laughs> I'm just picturing him on a ferry. Because wouldn't he have still been on the ferry? Like, where the fuck are you running, bro? Good for him. Where you are know? you going? Now that's A plus for into effort. The water just the, swimming back to Canada. The freezing cold water <laughs> in the Pacific. In Explosives that he had in his car would actually cause an explosion 40 times greater than a car bomb would have. He had a shit ton of Holy lifting. Yeah. How was he driving with that? Well, no, because a lot of. It wasn't all combined yet. Obviously, he had like powders and things like oh, that. Oh, so they're binary. Uh -huh. Okay. All right. For yes. those of you that don't know, there are different types of explosives. One of them being binary, where two ingredients have to be mixed together. And more often than not, a uh, blast cap or some type of projectile, or even an EMF thing, I won't get into that, has to be set off in order for them to even go off. Because they're still stable, they're still safe, but it needs an outside, fo outside force to actually trigger it. As a result, the New Year's Eve celebrations at Seattle's famous Space Needle were canceled for the millennium. Now, when asked whether Seattle's cancellation might embolden terrorists to intimidate other cities, Mayor Shell said, Obviously, we took into account those who would say we would be giving in to terrorism, but I'm more concerned about the safety of our citizens. Damn good mayor, if you ask me. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a good guy. Because mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, one side I can see of being like, no, nah, we're American, you know, all the rest of it. But at the other time, it's like, no, I, thousands, literally tens of thousands of people are going to be in this thing. If it goes sideways, they're all gone. Well, um. Oh, gosh. Meanwhile, in New York City, Mayor Giuliani, which I do want to say, after 9-11, Mayor Giuliani was hailed a hero, okay? Mm. And he was good at his job and he was there for the people of New York. 
However, I know he's bad shit crazy today. Mayor it's a trade-off with heroism. He had this to say. I would urge people not to let the psychology of fear infect the way they act. Otherwise, we have let terrorism win without anybody striking a blow. No mayor, no governor can offer anyone perfect security. Life involves a level of risk. I side with Mayor Shell in this. Mm. Um, I... I... Side with Mayor Shell on the fact that, look, if you had a hybrid of Giuliani saying those things and Shell acting on those things, I would be like, that's kind of the perfect man. Because, yes, allowing the psychology of fear to dictate your life or to dictate how you govern something or to put your faith into a man like a mayor or governor or president to put your faith into one of those people. They're still men. Yeah. Yeah. They're still they're still just people. Mm-hmm. Like just think about it. When you drive home from work and you're like, "Man, I'm really trying to stay strict on my diet," and then you get an ad, you know, on my the gas pump from from Wendy's, yeah. to Dave Singles, six dollars. That's true. I did that today. And you're like, <laughs> and you're sitting there and you're thinking, like, "No, I think I could probably do that." These people are faced with so much more difficult choices on the absolute daily basis, and you don't think that they're going to screw up every once in a while. Yeah, that's true. Like, yeah. But. Now, John's counterterrorism team at the FBI, they would conduct door-to-door interviews and of up to 50 individuals. So they were going bam and bam across the country. And this resulted in, quote unquote, dozens of arrests as a result of this case. Now, one such arrest was actually made in Brooklyn, New York. I can't pronounce this man's name, and I'm so sorry. If you're watching it on YouTube, I will put it up along with his photo. Moschini was a known criminal, and he was arrested on December 30th for his links to Rassam. Testimonies in court would later prove that he had provided material to support Rassam's plot, yes, to smuggle explosives into the United States. Even with this capture, though, it wouldn't thwart the celebrations in New York for the millennium. New York, baby. <laughs> Mayor Giuliani says, this is New York. If you tried to cancel, probably instead of 2 million people showing up, which is what they expected to show up in New York that year, mm. he says 4 million people would show up. And back then, I don't know about that, but today, yes. And now, at the same time, Giuliani's up there like, hey, terrorists, I'm, I'm walking here. I probably insulted so many people when I was in New York. <laughs> I just kept saying, I'm shopping here. <laughs> so to be fair, your last name's Delalio, and I think we immigrated into New York City. Yes, so we fine. did. On December 22nd, 1999, FBI Director Louis Free would brief officials from NSC, which is National Security Council staff, the CIA, and Justice on wiretaps and investigations inside the United States. While there, Richard Clark, who we've talked about extensively in this episode and our first episode, also warned, quote, foreign terrorist sleeper cells are present in the United States and attacks on the U.S. are likely. Dang, good. He's saying he's good because there was... Yeah, there was a big mix-up. Play that. I don't want to play it. (laughs) (laughs) O'Neill soon began to notice Osama's threat was not only foreign, but incels had already made their way into the United States. Um... Is that actually what they're called? Incels? Yeah. Is that legitimately what they're called? What do you mean? Incel is... <laughs> nowadays, it's involuntary celibate. No! <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll change it. <laughs> Do you see how short I am? I know, I've noticed you sinking. <laughs> Do you want me to bring my chair down? No, it's fine. We can bring the table down. Okay. You look shorter than me. I know. I'm going to bring my chair down a little. I'm you... sorry. Oh no, that's as far as she goes. Do you want to swap chairs? No, it's fine. <laughs> I'm secure in my height. Don't worry. So the noise you heard earlier was your chair breaking. Yeah. Awesome. So Clark asked to try to make sure that domestic agencies were staying alert. And he actually asked an eerie question while doing so. Is there a threat to civilian aircraft? Oh. Now that's according to the 9-11 Commission, and I do not know what the answer was. They do not go into what the answer is. But he did ask. Holy. Honestly, it seems like Clark and O'Neill were like the only ones actively doing their job. But... This was also about the time that Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hazmi 
began to pop up on the CIA's radar. Didn't pop up on the FBI's because the CIA did not let them know about them at all. So, over three days in January of 2000, the CIA would obtain film of an Al-Qaeda meeting in Asia, but they didn't have the audio of this meeting. They hadn't wiretapped. They just had the visuals. Who? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. When? When are visuals more important? Because you can take the audio you have and match it with somebody else's. The way they talk, their cadence, and everything like that. Yeah. So you wouldn't need to know, you wouldn't need to see who was in the room. You could just match their audio with the people who were in the room. Okay, never mind. All right. <laughs> well, if they had had audio, they most likely would have heard the details of Al-Qaeda's ambitious, quote-unquote, plane operation. Instead, they just continued monitoring the location of the men in that meeting, including Hazmi and Al-Madhar. Besides the FBI, the CIA also did not contact the FAA, who could have put these men on a no-fly list and not allowed them into our country, but for some reason they didn't. And soon, both hijackers of American 77, the plane that crashed into the Pentagon, were living in California and known to the CIA. Neil's people had captured a terrorist before the Millennium Celebration, but his fears weren't totally gone. They do believe that thousands of lives were saved from the capture of that man over in Seattle. Mm. However, during the millennial event in New York City, they believed about 2 million people were going to be in midtown Manhattan to celebrate the millennium. And O'Neill would be one of those 2 million people. If Al-Qaeda was going to attack, he wanted to be there. Holy based, Batman. That is absolutely insane. Now, in the summer of 2000, John would make a vital mistake that would have dire consequences with his career in the FBI. He would lose a briefcase that was full of intelligence at a conference that he was at in Tampa, Florida. When the briefcase was finally located, the FBI's fingerprint analysis proved that it had not been opened or tampered with, but the damage was done. John knew his career was at stake. Especially since in 1998, he had let a girlfriend use a bathroom in an FBI secret garage after his car had broken down, for which he was suspended for 15 days. And I can't believe he got a light suspension of 15 days over that. Because God knows what they had in that garage. And also letting the location be known as well. However, Al-Qaeda would strike again, and the FBI would send O'Neill to Yemen as head of the U.S. investigation team there. So it seemed that for the time being, he was forgiven. On Thursday, October 12, 2000, two suicide pilots of a small bomb-laden boat pulled alongside the USS Cole, making friendly gestures to several of the crew members before midship detonating their explosives. Holy cow. I'm sorry. I read ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, I won't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I tried to I know, I know, I know, I know. I won't do it again. The blast ripped a 40-foot-wide hole near the waterline of the coal, killing 17 U.S. sailors and injuring nearly 40 other crew members. 100 agents from the FBI's counterterrorism division were sent overseas to Yemen with John O'Neill at their helm. It was soon discovered that al-Qaeda was behind the attack. The FBI would establish a working relationship with the government of Yemen. However, outspoken and cut from a different cloth, John O'Neill made an enemy of the U.S. ambassador at the time, Barbara Bodine, almost as soon as he arrived. According to the 9-11 Commission report, John and Barbara clashed repeatedly, to the point that after O'Neill had been rotated out of Yemen but wanted to return, he was denied his return by Barbara. She denied his visa. And the one and, and he's been screaming about Al Qaeda and Osama. He's the expert on Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. He is the expert. But because I don't like him. Well, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't because come they in. clash. And it's like a healthy rivalry between branches is fantastic. It can help them. This is the ambassador, he, though. This is ridiculous. Yeah, but it's like a healthy rivalry between two people can help both people grow. But this is toxic. It's oh, toxic yeah. leadership is what that well, is. Well, and also, like, it affects the American people. Why don't we care about the bottom line of the American people? And we're going to get into that. Like, why? Why, uh, why are we so concerned with fixing other countries? I, I would love to know that, first and foremost. Why the fuck don't we fix our own? Because we have so many goddamn issues. Yeah. Especially considering poverty. What Barbara did mm -hmm. is not the ailment itself. It is a symptom of the ailment. 
Like, this is so prevalent. And like you said, I don't get into true crime all that much. Everything mm-hmm. I know about true, true crime comes from Danielle. Like, literally everything I know about true crime comes from Danielle. Probably Sarah a little, too. She, <laughs> she's she's into it, too. A little bit, yeah. But, like, you are seeing people, even at the lowest echelons of leadership, totally shirk off their 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 duties, so their responsibilities yeah. to the American public just because me no likey one person. <laughs> like, that's literally it. <laughs> oh, there's, there's, there's no other reason. You could have solved this case. You could have captured Osama. You could have stopped Al-Qaeda if you just said... You know what? This John guy, he's an asshole. He's a real piece of work. He says things like, I'm the FBI. <laughs> yeah, but like, I I hate his guts, but he does have a good point. Her denying his visa back into Yemen, that made him the first FBI official ever to be denied country clearance by a State Department official. Wow. Yeah. According to a documentary I watched by Frontline News, The Man Who Knew was a special on John, Barbara rarely rarely spoke about John. However, concerning the hindrance of any investigation, she said, quote, and you're gonna you're gonna lose it at this. So the idea John or his people or the FBI were somehow barred from doing their job is insulting to the US government. <laughs> which was working on Al Qaeda before John even showed up. This is all my embassy did for 10 months. 10 months, Barbara. So, um, okay, picture you're a cashier at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit off the rails, but just picture it with me. You're a cashier at Walmart. You walk into Walmart one day. You're doing a great job being a cashier. Everything's great. You and your manager talk a little bit. And you find out you, di- you disagree on some political standpoint. Okay, okay, that's fine. You show up to work next day. Only to find that there are security in front of it saying you can no longer you are no longer permitted in this premises. And then later on, you are blamed for the theft that occurred that day because one cash register wasn't running. So people could just walk through that and leave. Okay. You're blamed for that. And the management that you had an issue with just sits back and says, To think that we barred them from and stopped them from doing their job? That's ridiculous. That's a stupid notion. What are you, a stupid goo-goo brain? When John returned home to the United States, it wouldn't be long before he was passed up to be head of the New York office. That was in May of 2001, and it was a job he'd really coveted and wanted. Mm. But his his service record, I can kind of see why somebody who was not necessarily a brown noser, but somebody who was a little bit less good in their job than John was, but didn't do the things that John did. Like... Ruffle feathers, that sounds really stupid, but even in like military and stuff like that, you can't ruffle too many feathers or you won't Disney. get too, too far, right? But also the the losing of the confidential documents and allowing one of his mistresses to use the restroom at a CIA safe house. Yeah, so... I can, I, can see, I can see him being angry that he didn't get the promotion, but I can also see why they didn't necessarily give him that. People were lobbying against him, though. He made yeah. a lot of enemies. Like I will say, whenever you're good at your job... You make a lot of enemies. Yes. By that point in time, John's lifestyle had also put him in a massive amount of debt. His personal life was also suffering. His public image was that he'd married his high school sweetheart, Christine, and they were doing really well. However, he'd had those simultaneous mistresses that we talked about earlier, and his job also ate away at him, and soon Christine and him would divorce during his time at the borough. Now, by that point in time, even though he was close friends with Richard Clark, John O'Neill reportedly had been frozen out of the FBI, as he was by now more marginalized than ever. He never got the memos from the Phoenix office that we talked about in episode one from the flight schools begging to be investigated. Man, this could have all be could have could have been stopped. Yeah. Or the mem- there was a memo from the Minnesota office that was pushing to investigate Zacharias Masari. He didn't get it. This this leads me to believe that it was not necessary. This leads me to believe that it wasn't necessarily an inside job. It was a Winston Churchill with Pearl Harbor job. Oh no, 100%. Listen, listen, listen. And this is why this episode's going to get us in trouble. You're going to see, I have a whole ton of feelings about John O'Neill by the end of this. There is something wrong there is something wrong and it, it, it made me cry while while doing this script it made me like this whole thing and I mean mind you where our, our country is at currently 
it's very upsetting that our government does not have our best interests in their minds at all. It does not. It just doesn't. And, it's it's and, why we voted for you. It's why we elected you. It's why we put you in that place of power. And it's what our country stands on. And then my favorite is even with this TikTok ban and everything else, which, by the way, if you don't know, the TikTok ban does not only ban TikTok, it also goes into our, it infringes on our freedom of speech. Um, on every single social media platform there ever was because if it makes over a million dollars in revenue uh, per no, year. If it, if it has over a million users per year. Okay. What I don't understand too is that's what our government was built on. This is what our government was built on is the people being suspicious of the government. Like, hello? And you're supposed to be for the people, by the people. That's, anyways, it's such a rant. But yeah. I am extremely frustrated just on a whole level with this. So as we know, in the summer of 2001, the terroristic threats against the United States had begun to amp up. Refer back to episode one, but I'll quote a couple of the things that we talked about there. So on May 29th of 2001, Richard Clark suggested that Condoleezza Rice asked George Tenet what more the United States could do to stop a certain terrorist from launching a, quote, series of major terrorist attacks, probably on Israeli targets, but possibly on U.S. facilities. Clark wrote to Rice and her deputy, Stephen Hadley, when these attacks occur, as they likely will, we will wonder what more we could have done to stop them. In June, early July, Richard Clark would put agencies on quote-unquote full alert, telling them an attack on U.S. soil was imminent. And he was the guy, too, that suggested it might be by a car bomb, like, outside, because they were thinking about lowering those fences around the, the White House they had had, like, yeah. for construction or something. We, we talked about this in the first episode. Um, and, yeah, I mean, no one's being taken seriously. And this is the guy that also is like, hey... Civilian planes, have you thought about that? And side note, you might laugh about this one, but flashback to episode one, Clark is also the same man who said, quote, something really spectacular is going to happen oh, yeah, here soon. <laughs> That's something else. Yeah, <laughs> that is a quote. That's that is a quote. quote. But also during the summer of 2001, the briefcase incident that happened a year before in July of 2000, where John lost that briefcase in Tampa, was leaked to the media a year later. Wonderful, but you because he was probably making making waves again. So it, most Americans did not know the name John O'Neill at that point in time. They had no idea about it, but this put him in a terrible light, and it would be his forced retirement. This is what would force him out of the of the FBI. This is it. He knew who did this allegedly. I'm going to say allegedly. We know. So Tom Picard, he kind of rivals with John O'Neill. Um, he would take over for, we talked about Frisch, um, the FBI's director. He would take over for him from his resignation, okay? So he was in combat with O'Neill, and reportedly, that's who John believed leaked this to the press. And he went and confronted him about it, and of course, he denied it. Um, Tom would later say in the media, the briefcase was a big deal. It wasn't so much that he lost it, but he shouldn't have had those materials in the first place. So he's saying John totally overbreached, but I don't know what to trust from Tom Picard because he was a climber as well, and I feel like he would have done anything to make sure he was the director of the FBI. Okay, he shouldn't have had he shouldn't have had those materials in the first place. What? Let's dissect that for a second. Mm -hmm. Okay, so either you are saying that he was overreaching and trying to be like an upstart, and he was being you know kind of a, a brown noser trying to get a hold of stuff that he necessarily shouldn't have had, you know, um, in which case, why were those documents not more well guarded? Um, or second case, you believe that he had a malicious intent with those things and the losing or leaving of them in a certain place may have been some sort of drop to another, um, operator, mm -hmm. another, another person, co-conspirator, in which case, why weren't those documents more well locked up and secured. Yeah, it's just like a whole failure on all the boards. But also, and that and that I... whole thing that just says it screams mm -hmm. the FBI's failure. Oh yeah, and that whole thing. And whether you believe entirely that um, John should have had those pieces of paperwork and he just straight up forgot them, and it happens. Okay, it yeah. just it just happens. You know. He just straight up forgot those things. Also, he's on a conference in Tampa, Florida. I'm sure he was drinking. He went to Elaine's every night in New York, you know, after he was done work. So I would yeah. I would assume, you know, like, you. I mean, if you've been on a work conference, but... He's yeah. probably hanging out with his boys, having a good time, you know? So he probably just forgot, which in, in that case is a complete failure of the FBI. But also what this guy is saying is 
a very big failure of the US, uh, of the FBI. So well, I, I don't understand. I don't understand how hotels I've worked for have bigger um, privacy policies that I couldn't get my hands on. But anyways, as America's terrorist suspicions grew, they let one of the key agents go, who knew everything you could know about it from our end. Not only did they let him go, but they let him go in disgrace. John was forced into early retirement at the age of 49. Oh my gosh. And that, but, okay, you think this guy's a loose cannon. You think he's insane. But every piece of intel he's brought back has brought rewards. It's been a return on investment. Almost everything he's done has been a return on investment. Why not, hear me out, rather than just fire him in disgrace or, or, Pushed him to an early retirement. But we all will know what that means. Firing. Yeah, firing. It's, it's firing. They, they forced him. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Rather than doing all of that, how about just saying, hey, John, <laughs> um, we love what you're doing. You know, we're great down, guy. Okay. Um, however, we're going to kind of restrict what you can do and say. Bingo. Why don't you fix the issues that you have? Because he's a damn, he's damn good at his job. Yeah. like and and mm-hmm. And you see this all the time with geniuses around the world that they're womenizers they're drinkers they're drug users mm-hmm. they have all of these chronic issues oh my god um, but, oh, Stephen Hawking's but amazing yes you're talking about a genius so like work with him on that yeah work with him but and I also want to say so um, his friend Richard Clark he's the one that would turn to the 9-11 victims families during uh, the hearing for the 9-11 Commission and apologize to them. Where I can apologize to the loved ones of the victims of 9-11, to them who are here in the room, to those who are watching on television, your government failed you. Those entrusted with protecting you failed you. And I failed you. So on Monday, September 10th, 2001, was a night of celebration for John O'Neill. He had just landed a high-paying job with a salary of upwards of $300,000 per year. Several of his coworkers had actually lobbied for him to get this, but it was at his own request. He would be the chief of security at the World Trade Center. He had wanted the job, hoping to make the World Trade Center a safer place knowing it was still an Al-Qaeda target. He knew they wanted to finish the job and that they might try again. Weeks earlier, O'Neill told one friend, they'll never stop trying to take down those two buildings. This, this is like, this reads like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's awful. Yeah. His night of celebration began at Windows on the World, that restaurant and bar I told you about in the last episode, located on the 107th floor of the North Tower. He then headed to his favorite haunt, Elaine's, where his friend Wallace Miller, knowing O'Neill had recently been forced to be let go, retire from the FBI, approached him. John, are you okay? John said, Wally, I'm the best. I've got a job that pays me three times what I got. In typical O'Neill fashion, he didn't get home until about 2.30 the morning of September 11th. But he was up early and ready to take Valerie his mistress of 11 years. I know. <laughs> I, was this guy army? <laughs> this, this reads like an army guy. But he was up and ready to take Valerie to her job by 8.15 before he headed into his second day as secu- head of security on the 34th floor of the North Tower. Within an hour from dropping off Valerie, she had heard of the attack on the radio and John called her by 9.17. He said, there's body parts everywhere. Do you know what hit it? Valerie said on the radio, they'd said it was a 747. I'll call you in a bit, he responded. He also called his son, JP, who was 29 at the time and was on his way to visit his father at his new job. As soon as you make it down here, call me. I'll come get you, John said to him. JP, thankfully, didn't make it past St. Vincent's Hospital. That morning, John O'Neill was seen in several places helping people evacuate the towers. In the lobby of the North Tower, helping set up a command center with the fire department and borough. He's even seen for a moment on that very famous Nadeau Brothers documentary. Now, I watched the lobby clips from that documentary um, in doing this. That, that's my, if you haven't watched the Nadeau Brothers documentary on 9-11, you have to. 
Um, they catch, they're the only footage of the first plane hitting the towers. Uh, and they're the only people that were, they have video footage from inside the lobby of the North Tower. And they weren't even supposed to film that. They, they were in New York that summer to film a rookie um, fire department guy coming up um, in the New York Fire Department. And um, this is what they got. And it, it is a wild documentary. Um, but apparently they caught him. I had a really hard time trying to find him. And when I Googled it, this was according to the 9-11 Memorial, too, so you know it's correct. Um, but I couldn't find, like, a still frame. So I'll put up what I could find at where I believe John is. Because um, I, I did my best. But let me know in the comments if I'm wrong. So he was last seen heading toward Tower 2 after he had already called the FBI. And this was after Tower had been impacted. Now, the South Tower was the second to be hit by United 175, but the first to collapse. 56 minutes after impact at 9.58, the South Tower collapses. It's believed the high speed of United 175 led to its collapse first. Its collapse generated systemic waves comparable to the magnitude of a 2.1 earthquake. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. John's girlfriend, Valerie, said she knew immediately John was dead. Everyone told her not to say it, but she said in the instant she knew. John's body would be found in the ruins of the South Tower on September 21st, 2001. His family would be considered one of the quote-unquote lucky ones, as still over a thousand remains this day remain unidentified and in the safekeeping of the 9-11 Memorial Museum until they are identified. And the remains of the tower towers would continue burning for over a hundred days. And I think it's I think it's pretty telling of his character that even his mistress was able to say, I know he's dead because he wouldn't have left. He wouldn't have left. Yeah. He wouldn't have left. Instead of getting bin Laden, bin Laden in a twist of fate, bin Laden got him. Where John was found, though, it depends on the report. According to the 9-11 Memorial website, O'Neill's remains were recovered from the wreckage near Liberty Street. According to Frontlines, the man who knew, he was found in the debris of the fallen stairwell of the South Tower. Teddy Lebb, who was a friend and fan of O'Neill's, said this, I'm sure he knew who was responsible. I know he must have been mad as hell. He must have been thinking, how in the world could we have allowed this to happen? John's wake would be held in the back room of his favorite haunt, Elaine's. To bring it back to the CIA. Because they've always got a hand in it. But in in John's credit, yeah, I, his friend and fan, um, you know, I'm probably thinking he was mad as hell. Yeah, he probably was. And how did we let this happen? And honestly... To John's credit, there is legitimately nothing more he could have done. Yeah. There's nothing more he could have done. It's just so unfortunate. And and we'll see. I'm about to, to tell you about how our government just really, it truly doesn't care about us. Mm. And and he was one of those people. I, I do believe he cared. He cared about his job. He did a damn good job of his job. And it's really, really unfortunate that we lost him. Like, it, it just really and truly is. And I wish we could have heard what he had to say about the 9-11 attacks. Mm. But uh, if the nine, like alternate universe where the 9-11 attacks happened but John survived, I don't think he would have been the same person. Because from the John that you told me about and the John that his mistresses knew, mm -hmm. he wouldn't have left the towers regardless. Mm -hmm. There's The only way that could have ended is him dying in the towers. That is literally the only way it could have ended from... Mm -hmm. Unless he got caught well, you know, I was moving thinking between too, the towers. I was thinking, too, when I was talking out loud today to Mom about it, I was like, even if he got in that New York office job, and I don't know where the New York office was for even if he had, I think he would have made his way to the towers that day, whether they'd let him in or not. Yeah. Michael Schuer, and I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Ah, uh, who cares? He was a rival of John O'Neill's. Um, he was the former chief of the Osama bin Laden tracking unit of the CIA, which was also known as Alex Station. That was their, like, code name for it. This was a unit formed before bin Laden became a household name here in the United States before the 9-11 attacks. It was established in 1996 when bin Laden called for global jihad and said that 
you know, they were they were waging war against the United States. And it would be disbanded in 2005, six, excuse me, five years before bin Laden was killed. So according to Shewer, they believe that Al or that bin Laden wasn't the big threat that he once had been and that Al-Qaeda wasn't as hierarchical as it once had been. However, why were we pushing for the death of bin Laden then years later? Why did we risk our SEALs' lives going in there to get him? Why was the media still fascinated? Why were we watching TV one day and the TV cut out to let us know that he'd been killed? But Michael Schuer had this to say on C-SPAN concerning 9-11. And John O'Neill, who was the FBI uh, chief of counterterrorism, you had this to say about him. Mr. O'Neill was interested only in furthering his career and disguising the rank and competence of senior FBI leaders. Yes, sir. I think I also said that the only thing, good thing that happened to America on 11 September was that the building fell on him, sir. Okay. Are you kidding? The only good thing to happen on 9-11 was that the only guy that was alerting people and doing all this to further his career, even though he was doing several things intentionally to blacklist himself. Um, the, he was only doing it to further his career, though. You know, he well, was only... Well, would, Shewer would say to you that he only wanted to social climb. He only wanted to climb the FBI's ranks. That was all he wanted to do. But I would say to that, then he would have played by the rules more. He would have done more... He would have brown-nosed. He would have, if he had offended the um, embassy over in Yemen... Uh, got down on his hands and knees and, and begged for forgiveness and done anything they'd asked. He was he was barred from Yemen because of who he was as a person. But yeah, he was just there to social climb. Now to Michael's credit, I did want to play you this video um, that I found of him. And, and I honestly, I need to look into him more. Like I'm just going to be real about it. Um, because this was very interesting to me. The only disappointing part of a career that was wonderful and which all of you helped pay for and I'm deeply, <laughs> and I don't mean to be flip, I'm deeply um, appreciative of the chance th that I had to serve in our government. The one disappointing aspect is to have found over the course of my career that protecting Americans very seldom comes first for American presidents. They're more concerned about criticism from the New York Times and the Washington Post. They're very paralyzed with fear even this administration about what the europeans are going to say about them they're worried about what muslim opinion is going to do then kind of the next category is well we have to complete these gas and oil deals or we have to sell guns to this person or the other person then sixth is usually comes re-election considerations and seventh or thereabouts comes protecting americans and i think in the case of osama bin laden um, I tried to lay out in my book that uh, uh, fear of European criticism, fear of lo losing a big arms deal in the Middle East, um, and fear of angering Muslims around the world all contributed to Clinton and his advisors deciding to protect their reputations and their sales rather than to protect us. And I, I, the same thing occurred under Mr. Bush. So. It is, it is a distressing thing, and one of the things I wanted to write about in the book. But to piggyback off what he just said, in the Cold War, there was a lawyer okay. that was asked, I think his name was Richard something or other, was asked, how should the president be able to access the nuclear codes? Mm -hmm. And his opinion was that a volunteer should have those placed in a capsule directly behind his heart via surgery oh. so that when the president was about to kill 10 billion people he had to kill one he had to kill one and get blood on his hands to show what taking a life it does to somebody because the push of a button that doesn't translate it will it never it will never translate to to killing a real person but having to carve out that with a knife because the Secret Service would be would be ordered not to help him. No one would be ordered to help him. He would have to do it himself so that he would know what it's like to take a knife to somebody. And people would push back and they would say, but wouldn't that make him less likely to pull to push the button? Well, maybe he should be. That's 
That's the point. That's the point. That's coming from the from the perspective of a president mm-hmm. who makes these laws and makes these decisions and, and orders troops into places not understanding what it's like to have to take a life or even to be trained to take a life. They aren't yeah. trained to do any of that. They don't know anything about that. So Conspiracy Corner brought to you by me because Marcus has been in New York City. It's like almost completely unplugged. Aside from posting pictures of my beautiful trip. Yeah, if you're on Patreon, you're going to get some of those. This might be a whole total wild take on the John O'Neill story, but mm. hear me out, okay? People he used to work for lobbied for him to get that job, okay? Yeah. And who knows what the CIA knew at the time, and they did not like John. Uh. A lot of people did not like John. What if it was intentional that John O'Neill was killed by the very thing he'd been trying to prevent and by the very people he'd been trying to stop? So this entire episode, as I was researching, this kept hitting my brain of like, it's too weird that he was on his second day of work for this. Mind you, he was hired in August. Mm-hmm. This was his second day of work. So what... Like, and there is, like I said earlier, there is mm-hmm. no way he could have prevented this from his position at that. Oh, no. No, there's not. What are you going to do? Patrol the parking well, lots a little bit more for 747s laying down there? Well, no. even in his last few months at the FBI office, he did not know about the threats from the Phoenix office. They said, like, you know, hey, check out these guys that are training over mm. these airfields. And he did not know that they should be looking into Zacharias. So when I was researching about Yemen and about Barbara Bodine, I was like, I came across an article, and the article is called Who Killed 9-11 Hero John O'Neill? It alleges there is no coincidence that John O'Neill was killed in the World Trade Center. So they allege that the only man that benefited from his death was Osama bin Laden. And perhaps bin Laden himself had made arrangements for him to be in the towers that day because John had made bin Laden an enemy of him from, like, day one of being a part of the And not, And not only an enemy of him, but an enemy of the United States. By bringing it to the forefront of the agencies that he was a part of, mm-hmm. and at that point, bringing it to the attention of the President of the United States, and who then went on to say that, you know, this is a bad dude, we need to take care of him. Yeah. So this is a personal enemy of Osama bin Laden, like yeah. 100%. I would argue that John had way more enemies that would benefit from his demise. Yeah. I, I really and truly would. So um, John could have easily also become a whistleblower on the American government after 9-11 if he had survived the attacks. So he's been quoted in a book called Hidden Truth, which is also known with the title Forbidden Truth. I do want to put a disclaimer. I haven't read this book. It has not been widely reported on by the United States media. I will say, I think it's banned in Sweden or Switzerland from... You can read about it in the description on Amazon. It was released in like August or October of 2001, November of 2001. So it was like... A really fast, these journalists really put it together. So I do, excuse me, I do get concerned that the research wasn't fully there. I will say it was written by two French journalists that we're going to get into here in a sec. But um, John was once quoted saying, the main obstacles of investigating Islamic terrorism were U.S. oil corporate interests and the role played by Saudi Arabia in it. Now, according to the intelligence analyst and French journalist, Charles Bizarre, who is one of the people that wrote this book, he knew John, okay? And he met with him several times over the summer of 2001, and John would complain constantly and bitterly that the U.S. State Department and behind it, the oil lobby, who made up President Bush's entourage, had blocked all attempts to prove bin Laden's guilt. There's no other way that you can look at this. I'm I'm sorry. Like, I'm going to stop being silly for a second. There is no other way you can look at this other than the fact that he was blacklisted out of the FBI. Mm-hmm. The CIA hated him. Mm-hmm. Embassies worldwide hated him. So higher up politicians hated this man. And then suddenly... He gets this job. Very high paying job. Very high paying job. And it's Pay just for all his debts. And it's just because of his friends and family that lobbied for him. Oh my gosh. So the article would end with the following sentiment. Can you imagine how the events of the past four months would have been different had John P. O'Neill, former deputy director of the FBI and head of security at the World Trade Center at the time of the attacks, 
has been alive to tell his story. As things stand, only time will tell if O'Neill's story is investigated by the U.S. press that found Monica Lewinsky worthy of two years of our lives. Ooh. I will say there is one thing for sure out of all of this. If John O'Neill had survived the 9-11 attacks, he would have made sure to get to the bottom of them. And we still aren't. There's still so many mysteries but about, even, about 9-11. Even if he had survived... I mean, you're t like that's that's the issue when you start talking about the people in the CIA. Mm -hmm. Even if he had survived on his way to the commission, oh no, one of his tires blew out and he went over the bridge. Oh man, it's such a shame because when he was driving home from Elaine's one night, maybe he had one too many to drink and he ended up in the median. Like, yeah. and it, and it's insane to think about, right? But even. Modern day, people who are not linked with the CIA have this kind of stuff happen all the time. Like you hear about the Clintons and all the rest of that. Yeah, they're CIA, right? But you start talking about Kevin Spacey, yeah. who all of his accusers have Hard. suddenly wound up either missing or dead. You start talking about all these high profile cases, least of which Jeffrey Epstein, who I firmly believe was embedded with the CIA, but that's... A totally different story. That's a totally different series. Now, when, <laughs> and suddenly, just so happens that everyone who was going to testify and, and all the rest of it, and the most important witness in the case, Mr. Epstein himself, this high security prison, all the cameras went out? Yeah. I guess the guards were asleep? What? No. Like, how are we as an American people supposed to take that on the chin and be like, oh, yeah, I totally, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's good. That's good. Nobody is buying that anymore. Next, next week. Oh, gosh. It will be next, next week. I'm now working two jobs. Um, we'll be diving into the demise of the two towers, the controversial collection of evidence from the cleanup of the two towers on ground zero, and why the two towers were built to withstand a 707 hitting them, but not to survive September the 11th. We'll be circling back to World Trade Center 7 as well. One of you commented um, something that we need to look into on that. And I will also say one of you commented and totally predicted our John O'Neill plotline for this yeah. week. And I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> got us. Got him. Speaking of which, next week, this is why you need to be subscribed to us. You need to have your alerts on. You got you to gotta have the alerts on because sometimes we'll post something the week after. It won't be next, next week. Next week, we are going to have a bonus episode. That has to do with a certain celebrity with an anniversary coming up next week, which we can thank one of our Patreon members for. That's going to be all me. So next week I will see you there, but we will see you next, next week. If you haven't subscribed, do it. Like if you like our deep dives and make sure you have those alerts on. And if you want to come hang out with us over on Patreon, make sure you do because we've got our live stream right now. For our episodes, you would already know what this week's episode was about, although you kind of already know what this week's episode is about anyways. Um, That's yeah. just a conspiracy theory. Whoa! But until then, be safe out there, and we'll see you next next week. Yes, we will. Bye. Bye. Could you define the differences in agents who work on criminal cases versus those who work on national security cases? Is there a different type of personality involved? I don't think that there's a different personality. I think that uh, a good FBI agent is a good FBI agent. And if you assign an agent a duty or a responsibility, good FBI agents can meet that challenge, be they, they work in criminal cases this week or national security cases next week. Uh, it is our greatest resource. We talk about all of the high-tech things that the FBI has, all of the tools in our arsenal, and the greatest tool that we have is our employees, the men and women that come in day in and day out and work long, hard hours uh, to accomplish their missions and their tasks and to do it under the rule of law, to do it every single day, to protect people's constitutional rights, their civil rights, but at the same time protect them from all the bad things that are out there.